This past spring, I had the great privilege of returning to Vietnam to help train pastors in their work in the preaching of God's Word. I was amazed at what the Lord is doing in this part of the world. And as I interacted with these pastors and talking with many of them, I learned of the difficulties that they face uh, day in, day out. I learned of hardship and, and affliction and persecution, even torture and imprisonment for their faith. I was struck by the joy that permeated their lives, even in light of that situation and those various difficulties, and how they were not only joyous, but faithful and remain steadfast in faithfulness and in the things of Christ. It was a living picture for me of, of what endurance and perseverance in the faith looks like, and I return back to it often as I seek to follow Christ. Similarly, this uh, past week, I sat by the bedside of a dear friend who's preparing to leave this world and enter into the presence of her Savior. Amidst physical pain and affliction, I saw again this beautiful picture of persevering faith, trusting in Christ till the very end. This disease that had um, resided in her body for quite some time now was really taking its toll and winning the day. And though death was before her, she, she was fearful and yet faithful, trusting in Christ and his great provision. Again, a living picture of endurance and faithfulness. Now contrast that with uh, these reports that I read this week about uh, what happens to many of our youth when they leave the home. A 2006 study uh, told me of 61% leaving the church once they leave home. And another report in 2007 had the number at 70%. Where, where in these lives is the persevering faith that I've seen in other places. Where is it? What, what happens that one is so attracted by another way of life that they, that they leave the things of Christ and the things of the faith? Maybe you come this morning and you find yourself uh, wearied or worn or flagging in the faith. Maybe you're tempted to return to a former way of life, or there's something out there that looks far more attractive, more appealing, more satisfying than following Christ. Well, if that's the case, then this book, this passage, this letter is written, it's written to you. It is the case for the Hebrew Christians that they were running out of endurance and Spiritual lethargy had set in. Their strength was waning. And they wanted to return back to a former way of life. One that they told themselves 
was far better. And so the writer of this book sits down and he issues a a word of exhortation, a word of encouragement for them in this time, in this place. So before we turn there, let me pray, and we'll look at Hebrews 12 this morning. Father, as we turn to your word, we ask that you would show us great and wonderful truths, Lord. And perhaps there are some who come even this day who are uh, wearied in the faith. We ask that you would provide needed refreshment and encouragement from your word. And perhaps those who come, Father, curious, wondering, not uh, understanding faith or who Christ is, we ask you would um, show them even this day. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Our passage is Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. If you have your Bibles, turn there. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And I want you to move your eye up just a couple of verses to the end of chapter 11. For in those last closing verses of chapter 11, we have the reason for the logical conclusion of chapter 12. That is, why our passage begins with a therefore. And it says this, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The idea of something better has permeated the entire course of the Hebrew letter. And in fact, the word for better or superior appears 13 times throughout this letter. And it speaks to the core message of Hebrews, which is the supremacy and the excellency of Christ. The something better that God has provided is the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The once for all time sacrifice by which all salvation, all redemption is accomplished. This something better actually drives us back to the to the opening verses of the letter where the author sets forth the sevenfold confirmation of the divinity of the Son of God. He tells us in those verses how Christ is the heir of all things and how he is the creator of the world. Through him all things were made. How he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God, very God of very God. And how he's the sustainer of the universe and the purifier for sins. How he offers a perfect sacrifice for sin. And and how he is the supreme authority and object of angelic worship. That's how the author of this letter begins. If you will, on a mountaintop of Christology, of understanding who Jesus Christ 
really is as the Son of God. And then he begins, in the remainder of his letter, he goes on to unfold how this Christ who has come is better. How he's better than the prophets and better than the angels and better than Moses and better than Joshua. How he's better than priests and superior to Aaron the high priest and how he is better than the sacrifices of old. He tells us how he mediates a better covenant and is guarantor of better promises and a better plan and a better city and a better word and a better name. How he is better than everything forever and ever. That's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. And that brings us up to chapter 11 where he sets out the exemplars of faith who are waiting to see all these better things. But their salvation, the author tells us, was not complete. They had to wait for us. That is for for New Testament believers and by implication then for all who would trust in Christ for faith and salvation. They had to wait for the promises of God to be ultimately fulfilled. For God ordained it that we and they must be perfected together. And that we, with them, these Old Testament saints, one day will receive all the promises together. That's part of God's design and providence. So in light of this something better, the crucified and risen Christ, what are we to do now? That's the question this passage seeks to answer. And it does so in two ways, by pointing us to an exhortation and an explanation. The exhortation answers the what question, and the explanation tells us of how we are to do it. So first, the exhortation. It is a two-fold, two-part exhortation with, with a negative aspect and a positive aspect, and it's cast in the light of athletic imagery. Let us Run the race with endurance. Well, think for a moment what it would be like to be running a large, a long, arduous race. You're wearied and worn, you're fatigued, and yet you continue to strain and to struggle and to press forward. And, and then as you, as you get to the destination, you know it is it is where the finish line awaits, and it's within a stadium. And as you enter into the stadium, you see surrounding about you those who have gone before you, who have finished the race, who have met their goal. And just the, the, the image of seeing them, you straighten up, you lift your head, you run a little faster and a little harder, and you press on to the finish line. That's the picture here of the cloud of witnesses. It's how the roll call of faith in chapter 11 serves chapter 12. All around us, the author is telling us, are men and women who have completed the race. Some who've conquered. Some who've escaped death. Some who have died. And yet they have, they have remained faithful. And they are testifiers to us of the one who's enabled them to persevere to the very end. 
Alexander McLaren says it this way, these witnesses are visible evidences of God's faithfulness. And their histories shine across the centuries, testifying to us in our toils how good it is to trust in the Lord and how small and transient are the troubles and hindrances that a life of faith meets. See, they witness to us of the faithfulness of God unto them, even amidst adversity. For he led them and he upheld them through all their conflicts. And he brought them to his side at last. That's how these witnesses serve. And this is the setting then that the author gives us this exhortation. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You all know, along with me, that the Christian life is indeed a race. There's imagery and metaphor like this used throughout the Scriptures, and and it's a race that is more than, say, a 5K or a 10K. It's even more than a marathon, 26 miles. It's more like an ultramarathon. Now, most of you don't know what an ultramarathon is. And there's a good reason for that, because you're sane and in your right mind. (laughs) An ultramarathon can be upwards of 100 miles at times, the equivalent of four marathons. And there is a uh, a gaining popularity in this uh, country of those who like to run these races to prove uh, their stamina and endurance. And there is a growing history of ultra marathons. And in fact, you may not know it, there's a grand slam of ultra marathoning. It consists of four races, all 100 miles, and all run through mountainous territory. And one of those races is called the Western States 100. And it takes place on a trail in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. And in fact, it happens on the last weekend of June every year, which means it's happening at this very moment. And it'll take some 15, 20, 25 hours to complete. If you complete it, you get a shiny new brass belt buckle. (laughs) Pretty, Pretty special. Well, this race, the Western States 100 actually started as a horse race. And one day, one of the runners, or one of the uh, uh, competitors, showed up without his horse and decided he would, he would go the course and try and finish the race of his own accord. And, uh, and so finished. And in the history of this race, there is... Uh, one standout competitor, his name is Scott Jurek, and he is the ultra-marathoning marathon man. And he's won this race seven years in a row. And what is unique about Scott Jurek is after he completes the race, he stands at the finish line and he greets every single competitor to cross the finish line. 
And you can watch as they come into his sight, as he comes into their sight, of how they run just a little harder and push a little more, even after 20-plus hours of running. That's how these witnesses serve, in the same way. And so we look to them even as we run. And secondly, we need to look and lay aside every weight and hindrance. We need to lay aside every sin that clings closely, the Scriptures tell us. Our own Ken Taylor put it this way in the Living Bible, let us strip off anything that slows us down or holds us back, and especially those sins that wrap themselves so tightly around our feet and trip us up. That's a beautiful way to to translate what the author is saying here. The, The picture is of an athlete who would strip off their clothing so that nothing would impede. And that means the the race before them is a serious endeavor. In fact, the word used to translate race or contest is agon. We get agony from it. It meant that there would be anguish or misery or distress in this contest. And so this contest would require one's fullest dedication and commitment. And so they would seek to strip off everything that was unnecessary. It meant also stripping off extra body weight. So they would train in preparation for the race so that there would be nothing that hinders or stands in the way. If you've ever uh, witnessed the beginning of the Chicago Marathon, you know this reality that There are many runners, 40,000 plus in number, lined up. And as the race begins, what you see in the air is sweatshirts flying and sweatpants and hats and gloves all going off so that the runners may run well and complete the race. That's the picture here. And if it's true for, for athletic competition, how much more so for the life of faith? See, there are things we need to to discard in our lives. Sometimes these are good things that hinder us. They distract us from running well and from completing the race. I don't know what it would be for you. It could be something like career ambition or familial aspiration or perhaps the entertainment culture within which we live or technological consumption, mindless television, endless distractions online, social networking, unwholesome literature, even escapist entertainment. These things may not be wrong in and of themselves, yet they can still hinder us, and they must be laid aside, discarded. When we think about these things in our own lives, we should be asking, do they hinder me or do they help me? Do they further my faith? Do they stir up my affections for Christ? Or do they distract me and take me away from that purpose? These are the extra weights that can hinder us. But there is also sin which clings so closely. I don't know what that is for you, but I know one thing. 
from the Scriptures that sin is never to be taken lightly. It's never to be casually dismissed. When it comes to sin, there is there's this great potential for it to have a hardening effect upon our hearts. That's the warning that the author addresses earlier in this letter when he writes, But exhort everyone, one another, every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, sin deceives. It, it blinds us. We can't even see the effects of it at times and how it has its way with us and how quick our responses are in light of what's happening in our lives. And so we miss the effects of sin upon our own soul and it's never then to be taken lightly. So how do you know if you're being hardened by sin? How do you know if it's having its effect upon you? Well, perhaps you become spiritually sluggish or you have grown dull in hearing God's voice or, or maybe your resolve to run the race is flagging. Or maybe you're clinging to bitterness or vengeance or unforgiveness. You see, these are warning signs that need to be heeded. It's, it's like the runner when he, when he stops perspiring That's a sign that he's dehydrated and he's about to fall. So are these signs for us. Signs and warnings to be heeded and they should lead to confession, forgiveness, repentance, seeking forgiveness in Christ and and being wholly dependent upon His grace and mercy. So as we strip off that which hinders, whether it be weight or sin, We do so in order to run the race with endurance. That's the positive aspect of this exhortation. We we run the race that is set before us. Did you notice that? It's not a random path through a dark wood, but rather is the very path that God has purposed for us. In His sovereign wisdom, He's given us this particular course to run. And that may be filled with disappointment or discouragement, setbacks or frustration, heartache or pain, affliction. I don't know what that is for you. But I know our paths will often cross these things and these trials and testings are intended to bring about endurance and steadfastness. That's James's point. And so our exhortation then is to run with all endurance, to exert every effort, to cross the finish line, to let no good thing hinder you, nor no bad thing. That's what we're exhorted to do. The question remains then, how do we do it? How do we do it? That's verse 2. It's not something we do in our own strength, in our own power, our own resolve, our own utter determination, but rather is something we do by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We run looking to Jesus, setting our gaze upon him, our constant looking to him, 
away from our circumstances unto Christ. And when we do so, we see three things. First, he's the object of our faith. Second, the author of our faith. And thirdly, he is the perfecter of our faith. What does it mean to say he's the object of our faith? It means that we give him our full attention at the exclusion of all else. Because the word to look to here means to to trustingly fix our eyes upon Christ. It means we trust him and him alone for saving faith. And not only do we trust him, but we treasure him. And we, we cherish him and prize him above everything good. See, to look upon Christ is to cast ourselves upon him, to cling to him and rely upon him for all of life and all of faith. It means we put our total confidence in him and his atoning work on the cross for our sin. We don't place our confidence in ourselves or in our own works or in anything that we might do as somehow meritorious before God. Rather, it means we trust in Christ and his perfect sacrifice that the author of Hebrews has been telling us about for the course of the whole book. His sacrifice that accomplished redemption and thus is our only really substance and standing before God. It is the better way and it is the only way to God. So Jesus is the object of our faith. He's also the author of our faith. The Greek word for archegos is, or the Greek word for author is archegos. It means forerunner. The one who goes forward, who, is, who blazes the trail, overcoming every barrier. That is that Christ has overcome the barrier of sin. He is the initiator of faith, the captain of salvation. He leads the way. Philip Hughes says it this way, Apart from him, in whom all the promises of God find their fulfillment, fallen mankind would have neither ground nor object of faith. It is on him, as we have seen, that in every age the gaze of faith is focused. He alone evokes and stimulates faith, and it is because he is the pioneer of our salvation that he is the author of our faith. How does he accomplish that? He accomplishes it by enduring the cross and despising the shame. That's the point the author is making, that, that Christ despised the shame of the cross. For crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of low in this culture. It was reserved for the scum of society. If you have any doubts, turn to the closing chapters of Matthew and and look at the hostility and mockery and ridicule and disparagement that is bestowed, that that is shown to Christ. He despised the shame and he was victorious. He went from being the lowest of low to sitting at the right hand of God the Father, the highest of high. And he did that through the way of the cross. See, Jesus endured the cross. It means he has the strength then to enable us to endure and to walk in faith and perseverance.
But I have to ask this question of the text. In what sense did Christ experience joy in enduring the cross? It says, it says that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How is the cross joyous in any way for Christ? There are a number of ways to answer this question, including the fact of Christ doing the Father's will. That is a joyous thing, that his exaltation would bring joy, that he has brought to fruition all the promises of God. And even more, that, that in enduring the cross, he accomplishes the redemption of his people. You see, in enduring the cross, he saw the purchase of, of his blood. And for that joy, he endured the cross and despised the shame. Isaiah 53 says it this way. When, we, when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. Do you see that? Do you, do you understand the supreme importance of that? Charles Spurgeon understood it when he said, Christian, if Christ endured all this merely for the joy of saving you, will you be ashamed of bearing anything for Christ? Friends, if Christ is the author of our faith, if he did this for us, then we can trust him with everything. We can trust him with what is most precious to us. We can trust him with every disappointment, every discouragement, every pain, every affliction. And we can sing with the hymnist, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So Christ is the object of our faith. He is the author of our faith. And lastly, he is the perfecter of our faith. One commentator on the book of Hebrews says this, the greatest challenge of the book of Hebrews is to cultivate such a deep, and satisfying relationship with God that we rest in Him, whether living or dying, whether comfortable or miserable. That's, that's the purpose, the challenge of the book of Hebrews. To cultivate within us a deep and satisfying relationship in God through Christ. And that comes when we understand Christ as our perfecter. That he is not only the object of our faith, but he is the one who will finish our faith. He is there at the beginning and at the end. He will bring our faith to completion. The Greek word is teleatos, and it, it refers to one who brings something to a successful conclusion. And that's what Christ does. Paul says it this way, for he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. 
It is Christ who does that. For he has obtained perfection for everyone who looks to him. That's the glory of the gospel. And that's the hope that we have. How do we know for sure that he's done this? How do we know? That's what the text tells us. For he endured the cross and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Accomplished. Done. He's done it. He's seated at the right hand of God. The refrain here is to Psalm 110. It appears again and again and again throughout this letter. And it speaks to Christ being seated at the very place of honor at God's right hand. It it points us to His enthronement. His enthronement promises ultimate victory for all who persevere and endure in Christ. That's the guarantee. So I should ask, what about you? Is that your hope and your trust in, in the object and author and perfecter of faith? not, then this is the day to turn to Christ. And what about those who may be waning, flagging? May it be that you look anew and afresh to Christ and you see something better. That, that you look to Him and you long anew and afresh and you lift your head and you step forward another step and you run a little further. That's the call of this passage. And it is the great challenge of the book of Hebrews to cultivate the unshakable confidence that God himself is better than anything life can give us or anything that death can take away from us. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We ask you would help us to believe it, give us the grace of faith, and by your grace, Father, would you cause us to persevere, to endure in faithfulness to the very end. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.